and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8 today. And as I stated last week, Paul makes a transition here. So if you're familiar with the way that Paul writes his epistles, Paul typically starts out in an expression of love, of friendship, of encouragement, of prayer, and reminding uh, the church that he is writing to how much he loves them and longs to see them. And that's, that's a typical pattern for Paul throughout all of these, both church and personal epistles. Now he makes a transition to a point of exhortation for the next two chapters. So this letter then, this first letter to the Thessalonians, serves the purpose to not only encourage uh, and, um, and, and make them know of Paul's love, but it also serves as further instruction. What happened to Paul at Thessalonica? He was pushed away. So after a short period of time in being able to plant the Thessalonian church, he is pushed away by the mob. So now, instead of being able to visit them in person, as he remarked that he was hindered by Satan in doing so, he now sends them this letter to further encourage and strengthen their faith. So he says, finally then, brothers and sisters, we request and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel even more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things. Just as we also told you previously and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us or impurity, but in sanctification. Therefore, the one who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit. So I wanted to point out a couple of things because they're going to play a role in the rest of this passage. That is, look at how many times in yellow sanctification is mentioned. Okay, so sanctification is mentioned. Also look at who the author of this sanctification is and how often, how often Paul refers to God being the agent of this salvation and sanctification. That 
these words are directly from the Lord. Paul speaks in his authority because Paul has no authority. And that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned even in this cross-section of eight verses. So you think Paul maybe knows who the Lord is? <laughs> um, so in the book of Leviticus, we had a wonderful commentary. And I mentioned Leviticus because it echoes in what Paul tells the Thessalonians in this passage. If you look at this diagram, the arrows point in the direction of how these things change, okay? So in Leviticus, there are two categories. There is either the holy or the common. The holy or the common, okay? Inside of the common, there are two categories of common. That is clean and unclean. unclean. In order for something that is common to go from being unclean to clean, it must be cleansed. In order for something that is clean yet common to become holy, it must be sanctified. It must be made holy. And the overarching thing that happens to do that is sacrifice. Now, on the flip side, on the opposite side of the diagram, if you look at it, something can go from being holy and sanctified to being common by it being profane. And something can go from being common but clean to being unclean by being polluted. And the overarching thing that makes things move in that direction is sin and infirmity. These were very common themes inside of the book of Leviticus. And one of the reasons that, that we loved that book so much is that it amplified God's holiness. And it amplified for me instances in the New Testament where if you know, for instance, that sin and infirmity makes a leper, and then the Lord Jesus comes, and not only does he go up and talk to the leper, he goes up and heals the leper. And you see what a miraculous thing that is. The holy meets the unclean. And it's, it's amazing to see how Leviticus would help us to understand even today's passage, about our sanctification. So what is sanctification? It is that becoming holy, right? And in the case of our sanctification, it is becoming more like him, becoming more like Jesus. That is how we become more holy, as we reflect his character and we reflect who saved us. This diagram is one that I saw years and years ago and tried to recreate. So forgive me if it, if it doesn't make immediate sense to you. But what this is what this says is that at the point of conversion, 
you realize, enabled by the Holy Spirit, you realize that there is a gap between God's holiness and your sin. And the Lord uses that to save and draw repentance and bring you into a walk with him. But as you become more and more knowledgeable, as God's word illuminates that for you, as you become more and more edified in Christ, you see just how big of a gap that is. The cross becomes far greater to you because you see the magnification of God and his holiness and the view of yourself should be. So that's what sanctification becomes. And I mentioned these two things because that plays a huge role in what Paul says about sanctification inside of this passage. So he, he starts off and he says that he urges you in the Lord Jesus just as you received instruction. So when he was there, he gave them some initial instruction. Maybe it's Paul's walk with Christ 101, right? It's what he was able to give to them when he was in Thessalonica. But now he needs to do, as he alluded to previously in this, in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he said that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Not that anything was lacking for their salvation, but in their growth of faith, more instruction was needed. He says that you would excel even more. This does not mean Microsoft. <laughs> the word used here means to abound, that you would abound in grace even more by knowing more about God's will and your walk in him. And Paul identifies that this exhortation is from the authority of who? The Lord Jesus. So Paul, Paul doesn't come out and say, because I'm such a great teacher, here's my opinion, and here's why you need to follow it. No, even Paul, who would have a lot of room to do so from a human standpoint, says in verse 2, I'm giving you instructions that are from the authority of the Lord Jesus. Why does Paul have that authority? Well, because it was hand given to him by the Lord himself. An apostle is handpicked by Jesus himself. So that is his authority. That is how he has been placed there. So, Paul is doing as he describes also in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. If you'd like to turn there, please do so. As you turn there, I'll just mention that while we were doing a Bible study on Leviticus, the preaching at that time was from the book of Hebrews. And what a beautiful 
balance that was to see the priesthood be described in Leviticus and see the completion of the priesthood in Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become poor listeners. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual works of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to distinguish between good and evil. I point out this passage because Paul wants them to move on from the baby's milk. As Paul and the Lord would have us all to move on from the baby's milk. It's always good for us to remember our salvation and the basics of Christianity. But we need to be deeper. We need to grow in our faith and we need to grow in our knowledge of what the Lord calls us to do. And this is what Paul is doing. Now, he goes into a teaching about sexual immorality. He says in verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. When he talks about sexual immorality throughout the New Testament, the word used is porneia. That probably sounds very familiar to our modern context, right? It is the same Greek root word in which we get the words for pornography, for something that is pornographic. And it literally means the selling off of sexual purity. Okay? It's also translated in a lot of, in King James as fornication. So I felt it necessary to talk about what fornication is. Very simple. Okay? Very, very simple. Fornication is any sexual intercourse between people not married. Simple definition. And what I want to do today is to stick to the simple. Because I think we get, we try to make this complicated in our modern context. Sexual morality as it is defined by scripture is a very simple concept. We try to make it complicated because we try to excuse ourselves when we do not meet God's standards for sexual purity. So remember, remember what fornication or sexual immorality is referring to. Why is it contrasted with sanctification? Why is it contrasted with sanctification? One, sanctification moves us to that left side of that diagram, right? It 
we continue to desire holiness. We desire to be like Jesus. The opposite direction is to make impurity happen, to make sin happen. It makes us polluted. Okay? Sexual immorality pollutes us. So it's directly opposite of sanctification. So if sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage, look at what Hebrews 13.4, verse check me, okay? Hebrews 13.4, is that the right reference? I need another layer of yes, proofreading, I think. All right. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Simple. Simple. The marriage is supposed to be a beautiful thing, and and. Inside of marriage, this activity between a man and a woman is something designed by God. It's beautiful. It is not ugly. But it is beautiful in its context. It becomes ugly and what it is now and what we see on TV and the internet and everything else. It becomes ugly and gross because it's taken out of its context. The context that God, that God, not your elder at word of grace, but that God defines. He says marriage is to be held in honor. And it's deeper than that. It is deeper than that. It's not just the physical act of sexual immorality. But it's also the heart's attitude and mind's, act, mind's activity. In Matthew 5, 27 through 28, the Lord says, You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So much more than just the actual physical act outside of marriage is also this aspect of lust that, that all of us um, that are adults have probably experienced and have been tempted by. And both are immoral. Mark 7, 20 through 23. And he was saying that which comes out of a person that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. This is not behavioral modification solely. This is a heart's difference. This is 
where do these things proceed from? And that is the heart. That is why Jesus internalizes this to say, if you've ever looked with lust, it's the same as adultery. It is an internal attitude that is against God's word that is at the heart of sin, all sin. And look at the list that sexual immorality is included in. Thefts, murders, acts of adultery, wickedness. In other places, it's included in the list of idolatry. So, okay, Mark, it's this simple definition. It, it's marriage, okay? It's modern era. So does that mean that two men can be married to each other or two women can be married to each other? And then that, that becomes okay? Absolutely not. We could go through a litany of marriage's definition in the Bible, and perhaps that would be a worthwhile sermon in and of itself, is the definition of marriage and where that comes from biblically. But even in one uh, even in one example passage, if you turn with me, go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Paige isn't wanting to turn for all the Calvin texts. One second. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. In the context of that passage, there is no way for a man and a man to do that. There is no way for a woman and a woman to do that. And we could go back as far as Genesis, as Danny even alluded to this morning, and as Jesse took us through with the covenants, what happened? The Lord created Adam, and then he immediately created Eve as his helpmeet. From the very beginning, Genesis talks about how a man and a woman complete each other. Not only that, and not only from a moral basis, but much, much more is at stake when we talk about the sanctity of marriage, as that verse about the marriage bed being undefiled is. What is at stake? The holiness of God and the relationship to his church. Why? What is the church? What are his people compared to? The bride. The bride. So the morality of sex. The morality of marriage. Is what the Lord uses to compare his relationship to his church. Sounds like something we, we need to keep holding. Right? Additionally, if we talk about a man being with a man or a woman being with a woman, both are very clear in scripture 
sinful situations. If you go to Romans 1, it couldn't be clearer. I mean, some so there are some things in Scripture that you may need to have that might have a little bit of ambiguity to them, but I really do not think that this is one. Okay? Look with me in Romans chapter 1. What is it that happens? Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the dawn of creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them up to vile impurity in the lusts of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged natural relations for that which was contrary to nature. And likewise, the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve. Church, do not let anybody. God's word is clear. That is not the only passage that talks about this situation. But even in that passage, is there any part of that that was a positive description of homosexual relations. No, it is it is near the bottom of a slippery slope, isn't it? It is not. It is not tolerated by the word of God. And lest you lest we think that I, I don't 
love gay people or or love someone who practices these things. I have family members. I have friends that are in this situation. It pains my heart, but it's wrong. Forgive me, it's wrong. And it's hard to know those things. Doesn't have to be just that situation. Sinful situations and sinful lifestyles that surround us. And then we're asked to be pure. We're commanded to be pure, to be more like Jesus. And this is the direct opposite of that. Forgive me. Mark 7, 20 through 23. And he was saying, that which comes out of a person, that is what defiles a person. For from within, out of the hearts of people come evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person on top of every behavior that you and I would observe that is sinful. It is a problem with the heart. That is the root of sin. So in practice, how that's practical for you and me is the very first indication for us should not be the behavior of the sin itself, but being able to catch ourselves in a thought life, being able to catch ourselves in a desire that does not reflect that we belong to the Lord. There's a barometer there, like a, like a Richter scale. They can predict an earthquake coming because they... They feel the shocks, right? The root of sin being at the heart and mind, we ought to be able to catch ourselves before we do participate in lustful thoughts. You know, Luther said that you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest. We cannot allow those sinful thoughts to build a nest in our hair. Um, run if you need to. Flee sexual morality or immorality. Do like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. What did he do? He took off so quickly that he left his clothes behind. Right? Joseph wasn't sticking around for a moment of that stuff. He said, I'm out of here. Right? That's what we've got to do. We have to flee these lusts. We have to flee sexual immorality. First Thessalonians uh, 4, continuing in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in the matter. Because the Lord 
is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you previously and solemnly warned you. How do we possess our own vessels in sanctification and honor? Let's think about it this way. What is one of the most holy places, perhaps we could even say the holy place in scripture? It's the temple. What does the Lord call our body? The temple. Do you think that he would be okay with polluting the temple? No. As we grow in him and as we become sanctified and as we reflect Christ, the way that we do this is through self-control. So I love this commentary from uh, Jason DeRucci, who is a professor at the Midwestern Baptist Theological uh, College. He wrote this article for Desiring God, and I thought it was a great comment. Paul declares the answer to sexual desire is either the marriage bed or self-control. Those are the two options for you as a Christian, okay? If you are unmarried, your sexual desire, the path for you is self-control. If you are married, then it is the marriage bed. These are the two acceptable ways that the Lord would have you uh, what to do with your sexual desire. I've not yet reached that point in my life where I've been married longer than I was single, <laughs> but that's quickly approaching. Um, 22 years married. I was 26 when we got married. So, yes. Thank God. Um, and I, so I haven't quite reached that point. So I was single for quite some time. I mean... 26 might sound young, but I, I felt like a geezer compared to some of <laughs> compared to some of my peers, right? I mean, I went to high school in Avery County. Let's get real. All right. <laughs> 26, I was practically ready to be put out to pasture. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I I was a I was a single guy at one point, believe it or not. And self-control doesn't stop just because you get married, right? Perhaps even especially self-control is important when you're married. So those are the two, those are the two things scripturally we have to do with sexual desire, sexual control or the marriage bed. That's it. <laughs> Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 3, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, what? Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
This is the marriage relationship. And it is a wonderful one. This is something that us married folks um, get to enjoy. Um, it, this intimacy with the one that we're married to. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but what does it say? Does it say that each man ought to figure out his own way to please, you know, to, to be pleased in the sexual desire and whatever, you know, takes care of that is, is just, no. It says each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. What I'm trying to make the point of is that sexual immorality can be talked about all day long on the internet and everywhere else. But it's very simple. It's very simple. Sexual morality is that sex exists inside of marriage from a, uh, between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that is sin. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Here again, the dichotomy, self-control or marriage, right? For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence, knowledge and in your knowledge, self-control and in your self-control, perseverance and in your perseverance, godliness and in your godliness, brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness, love. What is Peter saying Build upon the milk. Start eating some meat. Get off of the baby food. These things are pursuing moral excellence, pursuing knowledge in God's word, having self-control, not just about sexual morality, but self-control in all things. There is nothing wrong with self-control. Um, and lastly, this is where Paul says to the Corinthians, flee sexual immorality. This doesn't say stick around and see if you can tolerate it. <laughs> this says flee, get the hints, remove yourself from the situation. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, the, the temple. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Your body is not to be used for impurity. Your body is to be sanctified. It is a walk that progressively becomes more holy. So as we finish up here today, just a few more verses. So we have self-control. Now, 
Paul goes to verse six and says that no one violate the rights and take advantage of his brother or sister in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you previously and solemnly warned you. We not only have self-control when we're by ourselves, but we have self-control towards our brothers and sisters, and we don't violate their sins or cause them to stumble. Romans 14, 19 through 21 says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All these things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the person who eats and causes offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother or sister stumbles. So what could cause what could cause your brother or sister to stumble? Having impure language, talking about things that you ought not to talk about, dressing in ways that provoke a response. And I'm talking about male or female. When you try to dress in a way that is provocative to get people to look at you and pay attention to your body, that is causing people to stumble. That is putting an obstacle in someone's way. Galatians 5, 19 through 24 says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Notice as we read through this passage, notice the contrast, the deeds of the flesh and the deeds of the spirit, okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, Wow. Sexual immorality is mentioned in the same sentence as witchcraft and idolatry, folks. That's how serious it is. Hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit, walking in the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesse, you and I have talked about mortification before. Killing the flesh. Absolutely. We don't want any part of that impurity. We want instead to pursue the things that bring us life. That exhibit the fruits of the spirit. And one of those is self-control. These are edifying not just to ourselves, but to the body that we belong to. So we should not make our brothers or si our sisters to stumble. We should do the direct opposite. We should be building our brothers and sisters up in Christ. Paul ends this with saying, for God has not called us for impurity, 
but in sanctification. Therefore, the one who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul reminds them of their calling to holiness. Yes, we, we're reformed. We believe that the Lord had in mind our salvation before the world began. He also had plans for our sanctification and our holiness and the good works that result out of those things. And then he gives them a warning. Paul doesn't mess around. His love for his love for the church is clear. And in his love, he gives them the truth and the warning that rejecting this teaching about sexual immorality is not just rejecting him. Paul, Paul would just as soon be out of the way and nameless, right? But is actually rejecting God and rejecting, rejecting the Lord's ordered creation. So if you disagree with Paul, that might be one thing, but you're not going to disagree with God. Not and get away with it. Right? So he tells them, receive what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, and grow in your sanctification by knowing we're not to be lustful. We're not to be sexually immoral. So I'll just summarize it by saying that God's calling for our lives is to grow in holiness through sanctification. Sexual immorality profanes and pollutes the direct opposite of sanctification. We not only control ourselves, but our thoughts and actions towards others. And we seek the edification of ourselves, our church, and the glorification of God through our obedience. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy towards us. Father, please forgive us where we have failed you in this regard. Lord, I pray that we would seek, Lord, to walk in purity. And we would seek to know what it is to be like your son more. Father, I pray that you would apply this message to our hearts, that we may reflect you more completely. In Jesus' name, amen.